Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, this is the book of Revelation, session 19, Ruling with Christ. For those of you who are uh, just joining us, uh, we have been in a uh, 19-part, I guess, a 19-week series thus far on the book of Revelation. We are going to go slow through the book of Revelation. Our objective here is to take one theme a week and to develop the book of Revelation in a way that just makes sense, that we can get. If we just take, uh, you know, the way that you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So I've heard I've not eaten too many elephants in my day. Uh, but if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you, you really are, do yourself a favor to break it down into simple components that then all connect. And so we're taking uh, 100 sessions over the course of the next probably couple of years on Saturday nights. And we're uh, going to talk through the book of Revelation and do some breakout discussions and do a little bit of Q&A. And so that's what you found yourself in tonight. And uh, we are uh, welcoming you to be with us tonight if it's your first time online or in person. And if you want to go back and listen to or watch any of the previous sessions, they're all available on our website. So you're welcome to do that. Well, tonight, uh, Ruling with Christ, we're talking about the leadership of Jesus in the age to come. And just a, a point of clarification. Eternity goes on forever, lots and lots of forever, but in God's purposes, eternity is broken up into ages, and so right now we're in an age, the age from, you could call it from Genesis 1, you know, until the second coming is one age in the timing of God, and God can make those ages long or short or however long he likes. Well, the next age is 1,000 years long, uh, yeah, 1,000 years long, and it's called the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. And it is the next age. And then after that, there are ages to come, which we don't know how long they are or all the details of them, but we just know that the ages go on forever and ever. And one thing we can be sure of, the party just keeps getting better. And the leadership of Jesus never ceases to increase in wonder, in awe, in glory. And the kingdom of God, the same kingdom of God we're reading about, the same kingdom of God, the salvation of Jesus, the same kingdom of God continues to increase age after age after age forever. It is one of the most glorious and mind-blowing concepts that we can possibly try to fathom. Well, we want to talk about tonight, the, in the book of Revelation, the revelation or the, uh, the, the uh, category of understanding of Jesus ruling in the next age and then in the ages to come. And we're going to specifically focus on Jesus ruling in the next age, that thousand year reign. Jesus ruling, Jesus living on the earth as a leader, ruling in that next age. And then also the, the craziest thing that we get invited to be with him in ruling. Now, I don't like to talk about odd ideas unless they're in the Bible. But if it's an odd idea and it's founded uh, uh, profoundly in the Word of God, then I don't want to call it odd. I want to call it real, true, and future. And I want to gain understanding and clarity about it. And one of the most interesting and perhaps odd ideas to us is that as believers grafted into Christ, we are going to have measure of leadership in the government of Jesus in the next age. And that is a very interesting idea if it's not one that you've thought much about. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go a little bit deeper in this subject. It's an idea that we've covered a little. It's more like one that we've introduced a little here and there in previous sessions. But tonight we want to go a little deeper. One point I want to make that's important, it's kind of a two-fold uh, point, 
and it's one that will show up a couple of times tonight, and I don't want to spend a lot of time each time it comes up uh, having to kind of reiterate it over and over. So I'm just going to say it here at the beginning, and then hopefully it will just mark us enough that we'll be able to carry it through the session. One point that's very important related to this subject is that not all saints will be rewarded equally. Not all saints will be rewarded the same in the age to come. And what that means in its most specific uh, relevance to this subject is not everybody is going to have the same level of authority and governance in the next age. Uh, it actually would be impossible for, let's say there's going to be two or three billion Christians. It's impossible for three billion Christians to rule 256 nations. Now, there's only, uh, as far as rule from the presidential standpoint or being a king over that nation standpoint, that's not how this is going to work. Jesus has a government that is as vast and varied in infrastructure, at least as vast and varied as the American government, and probably a whole lot more varied than that and probably built a lot smarter. And so we're going to be serving within Jesus' vast government that's going to have lots of different you know, levels of leadership and uh, of, of authority. And so it, while we will be having participation in his government, we don't want to be all thinking of ourselves as like, you know, the president or the king of the United States in the next age or the, you know, the, the president of France or something. Uh, there are going to be a very limited number of people that are going to be fitting that level of responsibility. But all of us will have some level of uh, government. Now, before we get into the concept of us governing, us ruling and reigning, we need to talk a little bit about Christ ruling and reigning so that it even knows what, whose hand we're holding, what partnership we're having, what, what is it that we're helping build and do. We need to look at what does it say about Jesus' leadership in the next age. And again, because we're doing a study on the book of Revelation, we'll touch a little bit on non-Revelation Bible verses. But the majority of what we're looking at is straight out of the book of Revelation because we're trying to get a grid of the framework of the book of Revelation so that you can be equipped so that when you read it next week, you read the book of Revelation on your own, there are pieces of it that make more sense than they did before because we've talked about it a little bit and connected the dots. So when Jesus returns, the ministry of Jesus physically ruling over the nations of the earth is profound and multifaceted. It is profound. We have never, not even at his first coming, we have never, not in the, you know, the, the book of uh, Genesis, we have never had Jesus on the planet ruling the nations as the guy in charge. That's never happened before. Jesus in heaven right now leads with a measure of influence, but I mean, really, it would be pretty accusational to say that Jesus is ruling the earth right now. That would actually be an accusation of his leadership being very bad because there's a lot of things happening right now that are not going the way that Jesus would want them to go. But when he comes, they will go exactly like he wants them to go. And so it's an important and profound mystery that we're talking about a future date where Jesus is going to literally be on the earth and be the guy in charge and, and everything that happens on the planet is going to have to process through his yay or nay. I mean, that is going to be so incredible, and I want to just paint the picture, so incredibly different than the most godly city or godly nation on planet Earth right now, wherever that is. I don't even know where that is, but whatever it would be, if heaven would go, that's the most godly city. It's still not awesome, but it's the most godly city. If you went and visited that, you would see things be like, wow, this is great. I love the way that they care about justice, or they're doing this, or there's equality in this, or there's, you know, wow, so many people are healed. 
You would look at it and find a lot of beauty there. That will be ridiculously poopy by comparison to what it looks like when Jesus comes and rules and reigns on the planet in his physical form. The best that we have now will pale in comparison to what we will be realizing as a daily reality under Jesus' physical leadership on the earth. That's, a prof- that's like a fun thing to think about. What's it like when Jesus is in charge and showing it? So much of Jesus' leadership right now in humility, he doesn't force. So much of what he could make happen, he doesn't. He doesn't, but a day is coming when he will come, and we know that he will be crowned the king of kings and lord of lords, a title that he has not yet walked in the fullness of. To say he's walked in even 1% of it is, is pretty, I don't know how accurate that would be. A day is coming when he will walk in the fullness of that title, the king over all the kings, as in however many nations there are right now, there's 256, so if you line up the 256 nations, and they've got a king over each one of them, if you can call the president's king, there is coming a day when Jesus is going to go introduce himself, he says, hi, I'm the king over all of you, you are my sub-kings, and only if I let you stay in power, and a lot of you guys are in deep doo-doo, and I'm going to get rid of you and replace you because you did a horrible job on, on the last watch, okay? Jesus is going to be crowned the literal king of kings, and anybody that would be called a lord or a guy in charge or a manager or a leader, Jesus will be the lord over everybody with any measure of authority. The king of kings and the lord of lords. A day is coming when that will not just be a title about his future uh, ministry or about his nature. It will be a title about his current expression of his ministry and the administration of his nature. He will be the king of kings on a Tuesday, and it will be real in the earth. I mean, it will be real on this earth in in real time, in reality. He will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. That's a a profound fact. Well, turning the next page, page two, letter B, the kingdom of heaven instated on earth. How many times have we prayed, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven? Well, part of that, uh, well, that is a big subject. But part of what we're praying is for the fullness of what that means to be made real on the earth literally. And that will literally happen in Revelation eleven fifteen. Revelation eleven fifteen is at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The last trumpet sounds. Okay, and at the sounding of the last trumpet, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. At the sounding of the last trumpet, it says this. Revelation 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You have taken your great power, and you have begun to reign. This is the only time in the first time where it's said, You have begun. It is now a literal now reality. When this happens, He has begun to reign. Up until this point, it is a future thing that Jesus is going to rule and reign. When this moment happens, he has begun to reign. That is a powerful reality because I don't know if you you read that, but it felt for a moment like you were seeing the realization of the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom has come. Matthew 6 has finally happened. It, is, it has occurred. It has been realized on planet Earth. 
the kingdom of heaven has been instated on the earth. That is awesome. That is going to be the coolest moment. This is the hope of our calling. This is the real beginning of the kingdom age. This, there is so much about this that is like the coolest thing ever. It's the answer to billions and billions of prayers of Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth. This is heaven. I mean, how many people have prayed that forever? But this is actually what they're praying for this moment. I mean, in the fullness, this is the moment that is being interceded for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, do Revelation 11.15. That's what we're really praying. And Jesus is going to do Revelation 11.15 when he does Revelation 11.15. At the seventh, uh, sound, or the seventh angel trumpet, the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet. That's when Jesus comes. When he comes, he brings his kingdom with him. This is awesome. Next. Part of him bringing his kingdom is a giant uh-oh and duck for the wicked. Jesus will pour out his judgments on those who oppose him. Now, I want to point out, it's on those who oppose him. The judgments of God are not going to be poured out on the church. The judgments of God are going to be poured out on those that oppose Jesus. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. By the way, this verse is two verses after the one we just read where Jesus' kingdom comes. This is part of his kingdom coming. It's a giant uh uh-oh. Your wrath has come. Jesus bringing his kingdom is Jesus bringing his wrath. Now, he brings a whole lot of other things, but wrath is on the list. And your wrath has come. The time, notice this, the time. There's a timing. The timing of the kingdom coming. The time has come for judging the dead, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, And the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. These are those that I was speaking of that are in opposition to Jesus' purposes. This isn't talking about, you know, those that, you know, forgot to recycle. This is talking about those that are destroying the earth. Those that uh, that are actively attacking the Lord's plans and purposes for the earth. They're the ones that are actually desecrating the earth. It says that creation is groaning because of the sins of mankind. Those that are destroying the earth, this is describing all of those that are, uh, that are in league with the Antichrist in that hour, those that are waging war physically against the saints, all of those that are in league with the Antichrist are going to be part of this destroying the earth because actually it says that the judgments of God are going to be poured out on those that are uh, participation, or in participation with wickedness. And so it's actually God is pouring out his judgments on those that deserve it, and God's the one that's destroying the earth. But he's destroying the earth because of those that are doing things against his bride, that are standing against him, that are declaring war against him. And so we see now that Jesus is coming with his wrath to deal with all of the enemies of God, okay? What's he going to do? Well, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to strike them down with a sword. Sometimes we think about Jesus only in terms of big eternal God far away, who snaps his finger and does a a plague in the end times. And those plagues are the only expression of his wrath. Those plagues are definitely a very real expression of his wrath. We've got seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. All 21 of those judgments are gnarly. And they are Jesus, if you will, like snapping his finger at the moment in time where Jesus says it's now time to release that judgment on the earth. Jesus is going to do the faraway judgments for sure. But we must not... Uh, limit Jesus' wrath to only faraway distant versions. 
We need to see Jesus up close with a sword in his hand, killing bad guys with a sword. Because he's going to kill bad guys with a sword. In addition to launching plagues against the earth. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Jesus is physically going to lead a battle charge, and a, an army, a war campaign, with a sword in his hand. And that sword is not for you know, symbolic sake, like, look, I'm the guy with the big sword, everybody follow me. He's going to use that sword to do what swords do. He's going to cut down bad guys, those that are in league with the Antichrist, those that are opposing his purposes. And so we want to have a picture of God as the mighty one in heaven who has the ability with just the thought to cause creation to exist just because he said so. He spoke over the deep, okay? We also want to have a picture of God that shows up in the form of Jesus with a sword in his hand to deal violently with the enemies of God on the earth real, in real-time, one-on-one situations, Okay? The celebration of Jesus' return. This is like kind of the biggest deal in all of history. When Jesus, I mean, think about this for a second. When earth was made, the angels already knew Jesus was going to eventually be born a human, live and die sinless, be resurrected, await a bride, return and come and rule so that then really things could get started in the ages to come. The angels already knew that when Genesis 1 happened. Okay, when, when you've got the earth beginning, you've got the, you know, all these things in creation being formed, the angels already know the story from the beginning. Okay, at least significant aspects of it. This has been a long-awaited moment in history. This is not like, you know, any other day in the kingdom of God. This is something monumental and unprecedented. This is the day that the kingdom of heaven becomes reality on the earth. And Jesus now takes up his rightful place. The one that he was always due, that it's an embarrassment that he was, he, he allowed himself in humility to be born a baby and have poopy diapers. The king of kings had poopy diapers. It's crazy that in that level of humility, he would permit that upon himself. He's finally going to walk into the fullness of his calling when he shows up as the king of kings and lord of lords and it says, praise our God, you servants, uh, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what was like the sound of a great multitude, like the roars of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give him glory. Or be glad and give him glory. It's the time, it's the great rejoicing of the moment of the transition of history where now the kingdom has been handed over to the rightful king, to the, to the return of the king. He is now ruling and reigning on the earth at, in his rightful position for the first time ever. All of creation subject to him, his leadership, his lordship, his goodness. This is the greatest moment in heaven and on earth. Even creation is longing. Dirt and trees are longing for this moment, for the moment that the rightful king comes to make wrong things right and set all systems in place in a way that is godly and is ordained uh, by the purposes of creation of, according to God's uh, uh, wisdom. This is the moment. This is awesome. Jesus will then rule the nations with an iron scepter. <laughs> we, we need to recognize something. Jesus is the kindest, wisest person ever. And he's also a dictator. Dictators don't take counsel from anybody if they don't want it. 
Dictators do what they want to do. It just so happens he's also perfectly kind and perfectly wise. And he can make no mistake. But he is a dictator. And he is going to rule with an iron scepter. It will be his way or the highway. Now, that's actually really, really good news. It's horrible news when it's anybody else. But when it's Jesus in charge, in perfect wisdom, in perfect love, in perfect kindness, we can trust that he will be the most benevolent leader ever. But we're told again and again, he's going to rule with an iron scepter. We're told that for a reason. Because he's not going to play around with sin. He's not going to put up with foolishness and folly and waste and lack. I mean, he's going to say, no, (laughs) I love you. We're doing it my way. I am smarter than you, I promise. I've got this whole thing figured out. Yeah, well, I really want to mess around with this thing or or do this sin. There will be none of that allowed on his watch. There's never been a king that will operate in such perfect wisdom and justice and love as this man. So he will operate in perfect clarity. Everyone will look at his judgments. Everyone will look at his leadership and go, perfect. Perfect. He couldn't have done any better. But we must understand he will rule with an iron scepter. And that that point is made again and again and again. It, it is a statement of the fierceness and the boldness and the unchallengeableness of his rule. And he will assert his rule. It's not like he's going to go, oh, well, that nation over there, I mean, all the other ones, they like me and they, they want to follow the rules. But that nation over there, they don't. Well, you know, I guess we'll just let them do whatever they want. No, iron scepter them. They will fall in line. It just so happens that in line is perfectly kind, perfectly good, perfectly wise, but they will fall in line. He rules with an iron scepter. I just, every time I think about that, it just, it just causes you to have to kind of like str- ache a little, struggle a little through our revelation of who Jesus is because we, we have this picture of him as only meek. But remember, he threw tables over at the temple, okay, and got a whip out. I mean, you don't whip people unless you, you whipping them, you know, I mean, whip, like, yeah okay all right all right so anyway iron scepter all right overthrowing the opposing rule before we look at what our part is in this we need to talk for just a second about how crazy violent of an opposition there will be when jesus comes you know you think about a uh, a king you know coming whatever movie you're thinking of whatever medieval movie or whatever it's like the king comes from a far country and the the guy who's in leadership now you know the lord of nottingham or whatever some some bad guy is leading he's kind of a bad guy but like he's done one good thing once at least you know and even on his bad days he's not at like 100% bad all the time all right and not all of his goons are 100% bad and demonized not all of them When Jesus comes back to the planet, the planet will be ruled by a dictator called the Antichrist. This will be the worst person ever. Everybody in his government will be fully committed to Satan worship. This will be the most evil person with the most evil intent. And even before the Antichrist, there's the forerunner for the Antichrist, the rule of the harlot Babylon. I want to give you just a couple of verses here. We're praying for the kingdom of God to come. But that kingdom is going to have to invade the current kingdom. And right now, the kingdom of the earth is bad. It's going to get a whole lot worse. A lot worse. That's not gloom and doom or, you know, being, me being a naysayer. That's just me knowing the Bible a little bit. The Bible promises it's going to get a lot worse. 
the increase of wickedness is going to rise so much, it's going to cause the love of all humans to grow cold. And we will have to fight very hard to not find ourselves succumb to the coldness that our hearts are growing because of the increase of the wickedness around us. That's what the Bible says. That's uh, Matthew 24, 13. Okay? The world is going to get worse and worse and worse. When Jesus finally shows up, we're talking about a gnarly environment. This is going to be an ugly, hostile, yucky environment that begins with a term that, if you're not familiar with it, this term is uh, in the scripture is either referred to as the great prostitute or the harlot Babylon or the prostitute Babylon, one of those uh, names. All of them mean the same thing, bad. The, uh, the harlot Babylon will rule. Read you a couple of verses here, Revelation 17, 18, and then 19, 2. The woman that you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is talking about a global system of rule that will operate completely out of compromise. It, the objective of the harlot system, <coughs> the harlot infrastructure, is to get all the nations of the world unified together with wickedness as the common bond, not love, peace, unity, not prosperity only, wickedness as the common bond. How can we get everybody together in wickedness and then, oh yeah, I know, in order to fuel that wickedness, we'll, uh, we'll reward them with influence, we'll reward them with finance, we'll reward them uh, with infrastructure and reward them with technology, but let's get everybody unified in wickedness because the name of this uh, woman, Revelation 17, is the harlot Babylon. This is a system that's going to rise. It's starting to rise now. We can see the uh, kind of the beginnings of it for sure. But it's going to get fully developed and become a global system that will be the most wicked thing we've ever known in, uh, in the history of mankind. What's scary about it is as wicked as it's going to become, something even more wicked is going to eat it, is going to take it over, is going to consume it, is going to piggyback on top of it. And that is the Antichrist is going to rise and where the harlot Babylon system is all going to be, let's just, everybody lower your guard, let's compromise, let's not make a big thing out of any religion, all religions are the same, let's not make a big deal about the borders of the nations, let's just have everybody kind of come together and be, there's going to be this, this uh, movement of compromise and inclusion that's going to be a global reality under the harlot Babylon. The Antichrist is going to come in and says, no. I'm in charge now. Satan worship is the new global religion. That's a jump. I mean, that's, that's a big jump. <laughs> I mean, the heart of Babylon is a bad deal. The Antichrist uh, worship system is going to be even more violent. And the Antichrist is going to do like really kind of the, the wisest thing you could do as a dictator. And that is don't reinvent the wheel. Just take advantage of what system is already in place. The Harlot Babylon is going to create a global network. The Antichrist is going to come in and take over that global network. But he's going to change the rules from everybody sing Kumbaya to now let's all worship Satan. That is the objective of the Antichrist worship movement. I gave you a few verses here on uh, the Antichrist worship movement and uh, what that's going to look like. But where it comes to a head is the Antichrist is going to then use that system to martyr the saints and to declare war against Jesus. This is crazy. Read these verses with me. Revelation 17, 14, Revelation 19, 19. They will wage war against the Lamb. What in the world? Who does such a thing? The Antichrist and his government will wage war against the Lamb. That doesn't mean they're going to be like, you know, talk bad about Jesus. It means they're going to go, 
There's the lamb, because they'll actually be able to see Jesus with their eyeballs when Jesus appears in the sky. They're going to see him and they're going to go, we're going to declare war on him. We're confident we'll win. We've got so many armies and so many big guns and so many this and so much that. We're going to declare war on the lamb. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. If you didn't catch it, Revelation 19, 19 makes it really clear. It's an army. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Friends, there is a war coming. A war. A, not spiritual, physical. A war coming between Jesus and his armies, which includes all the resurrected saints at that moment. When Jesus comes, we get resurrected, and now we're part of his army. There is a war coming between Jesus and the armies of heaven and the Antichrist and the armies of earth. There's a real war, and for Jesus to come and be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's got to come and kind of like whoop up a little bit, you know? He's got to show up here on the planet and start to kick tail and take names and make it really clear who's the new guy in town and who's in charge. He doesn't just come in and ask permission, hello, Mr. Antichrist, would it be okay if I, you know, kind of carve out a portion of the earth for myself? He comes in and destroys the Antichrist and his armies with an army, and remember, Jesus has a sword in his hand, okay? It says the saints behind him will also have swords. This is how Jesus takes over the planet. So when we talk about, for a moment, ruling and reigning with Jesus, not all of that is nice, fluffy, uh, warm, and smiles. I mean, this is like really intense. Jesus is going to enlist an army to come destroy an army. And that army on earth of the Antichrist and his followers will be, I mean, venomous, will be, will be enraged, will hate Jesus with passion, and will be convinced, even though the Bible says they're going to lose, they'll be convinced that they can win. They will only fight the battle against Jesus because they believe that their forces are so great and their, their cause is so, you know, whatever, just or real to them that they believe that they're actually going to be able to fight the lamb and win. And of course, it's crazy. Now, that's how all of this happens. Then let's look here now for just a couple of minutes. We don't have time to go into all the notes. I want to encourage you to read these verses on your own, but I'll give you just a couple of minutes uh, to touch on it. This is the setup for what is then the reality of us ruling and reigning with Jesus forever moving forward. This is Revelation 1, 6. To him who loved us, has washed us from our sins in his own blood, and who has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us to be kings. That is not a cute term. It's not a neat idea like, oh, you know, we're all just, you know, kings in the Lord. That, if that's all that means, that's kind of dumb. He has made us to be kings. He has made us to be literal rulers of his government, which will never end. His government, which will never cease to expand and grow. He has created a special forces, if you will, that he is going to train up in this age and in the ages to come to be his kings, his leaders, his governmental leadership of his government. 
It's not like Jesus is going to enlist the angels to be his government. He's going to enlist humans to be his governmental enforcers, enactors, judges, rulers, all that. It's going to be humans that have given themselves to Jesus, that he and his decision, his wisdom, his humility, his kindness, why would he ever make me a king? That just seems like a really bad idea. Such an incredible gamble. But he has created us to be his kings and to be his priests in order to serve his purposes and to serve his father forever. And kings lead stuff. That's what kings do. Okay? Now again, I don't want to go into all the areas of jurisdiction and how, many, how much responsibility does this resurrected saint have and how much does this one have because it's all going to vary. But I will say this. The one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Nations. There will be those in Jesus' government who have authority over nations. And, you know, we've created infrastructure on the earth, government, leadership, the EU. We've created different things. And Jesus may look at all of that and go, yeah, you guys were kind of on the right track a little bit, but I've got to do it a lot better. Or he might utilize it or he might totally throw it out and do something completely different. I think we have only the smallest picture of what government looks like. I think we have only the briefest little glimpse of what it looks like to do government. So who knows how Jesus is going to do it, but we can see this. There will be those that will be given authority over the nations in the coming age. Ruling with Jesus and his iron scepter. Oh my gosh, remember that iron scepter part? That one will rule with uh, rule, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my father. Jesus is saying, I'm going to rule with an iron scepter. I'm going to give some of you the same scepter to rule with. Oh my gosh, crazy. To sit on his throne with him. This is unbelievable. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. We don't know exactly what this looks like. Is there some sort of rotation system? Is there like a mini seat right next to Jesus? He's got his big seat, and then there's a mini seat, and there's just like a little arm bar between them, you know, or something, and it's like that's the seat. We don't know exactly what this looks like, but this is literal. This is real. This is not just figurative to mean, you know, that uh, people are going to get to rule in some capacity because Jesus gets to rule in some capacity. This makes it very clear. I'm going to let them sit with me on my throne just as I sit on my father's throne and rule with him. The same. Jesus literally sits on the father's throne. We will literally sit, some, will literally sit on Jesus' throne. That's crazy. Thrones in which to judge. Oh, that's just, uh, we don't have time to go into all this. There's a bunch of good Bible verses here. I want to encourage you to read, to chew on, to, to kind of meditate on. And what we're going to do at this time is we're going to break up into discussion groups so that you guys can talk through some of this stuff, and then we'll uh, get back together for Q&A. So, okay, uh, just uh, for all of you who are joining on uh, Facebook Live, we're going to do our time of Q&A now. And uh, when I ask you uh, leaders, the, the group leaders, the question, uh, as you present the question, I'm going to repeat it so that we've got it uh, available for those that are online and also for the sake of the recording. So um, uh, we can start over uh, here. Andy, how about you guys? What was your question?
And Andy gives me a loaded question uh, with a 19-part series answer. Uh, okay, so the question was, in the millennium, uh, we're, um, we're going to have levels of leadership. Uh, does the scripture speak to what our daily lives will look like? Uh, I would be so happy to just say yes and amen and then move on. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, there's a lot of information on the subject of the millennium. Uh, I would just guess that there's probably, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so references uh, or, or passages about the millennium in the scripture. I'm just guessing somewhere around a hundred. Um, and those passages, when you read them all together, like if you put all of them, so the book of Proverbs is a compilation of Proverbs, and we put them all together and it's a source of incredible insight. If you put all the verses together about the millennium, uh, which we've done, um, you would then have an incredible resource to learn about a thousand-year period of time. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information about what we'll do, what we won't do, uh, the, uh, the daily lives of those that are on the earth without resurrected bodies, as well as those who loved Jesus in this age and received a resurrected body, and who uh, all these promises about leading and leadership and being kings and uh, what our lives will look like because we'll have unique interaction between heaven and earth. We have a home in heaven where we, Jesus is going to prepare a home for us in heaven, but we'll still have assignments, millennial assignments on the earth, work that we do on the earth and leadership that we have. Uh, we'll still eat food. We'll, we'll do a lot of different things. There's a tremendous amount of information on this subject. Um, we have a 14-part course called Life in the Millennium. And uh, the books will be out in the bookstore in the coming weeks. Uh, we just got our first two this week. Uh, it's 14 sessions that answer that question. Um, there's no easy one-verse answer. It is one of the most glorious, awesome. It's a thousand years that we actually know a lot about from the Bible. And I think that we would all do ourselves a disservice to ignore all the verses that talk about that 1,000-year period of time that we're going to be alive for. I mean, we're going to be alive somewhere, somehow, and we're going to get to experience. So I think it's glorious to dive into that, and I want to encourage you to, uh, if you, wait, if you can't get the book immediately, we've got, a, I think, an eight-session online about the millennium, life in the millennium. Um, so I would encourage you to go deeper on that subject and uh, to discover it for yourself because it is a wide, wild, awesome uh, a very detailed uh, reality. It's so much fun to study. Um, so I, I know that was a terrible answer, but there's really just not a, an easy way to give you what you wanted uh, because the information is so vast and glorious that to try to dumb it down into a few verses or, or, or sentences is just a total injustice. So short answer is yes, we can know a lot about our daily lives in the millennium. Um, okay, let's do this group. question is, why does Jesus need us to rule with him? He's God. He could certainly do it all by himself. Why does he need us? He does not need us. Next question. <laughs> he, he wants us. He likes us. Uh, God from eternity past has been into partnership, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The bride gets to enter into the divine partnership. And that was always his purpose. And that's so beautiful and embarrassingly 
painful. I mean, it's like, how, why would we get to do that? It's a get to, not a need to. He, he does not need recruits. He loves partnership. He loves for us to have this conversation and kind of get a little bashful and blush and go, I'm going to get to rule with him. Oh my gosh. Like he loves to excite our hearts. He loves to give. He's a, he's a good father. He loves to give good gifts. What better gift than giving real authority in his kingdom, his kingdom in full manifestation? Oh my goodness. What incredible partnership. Uh, the kingdom of God is all about partnership. God, God could get that person saved all by himself. But he wants you to go talk to that person about Jesus. And then he's going to use you. You. Who are you? So get that person out of hell forever and into the kingdom. <laughs> it's crazy. Because what are you? You're just dust put together in some guts and stuff. It's like God loves partnership. He loves it. He loves it. So he operates with generosity and partnership. And so the kingdom age and all the ages to come, it's not about him needing a workforce. It's about him inviting his family to run the family business called the kingdom of God forever. It's like the coolest thing ever. And so it's really just an expression of his generous heart and the unbelievable lottery that we've won by giving our lives to Jesus. It's the gift that just keeps on giving and giving. I mean, in a billion years, when we really start to understand we're going to be so blown away by, I mean, again, with fresh new revelation. And we, oh my goodness, I had no idea that that was the plan. We are never going to cease to be blown away by this man, by his generosity and his, his wisdom and all the cards he's still holding up his sleeve that he's not yet revealed. I mean, it, he's brilliant and good. So I, I, I'm so glad you asked that question because I just love talking about that. Um, this question over here, Cass. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. So the question was, uh, um, I use the term Jesus is going to come and use the iron scepter. And I, I, uh, use the term dictatorship. And why did I say dictatorship as opposed to monarchy? Uh, probably because I don't know enough about governments to know what a monarchy is and a dictatorship is. Uh, uh my, my point wasn't that, that, well, I don't, I don't know what I was trying to say with that. What I was trying to communicate is that Jesus is going to lead with, total authority and there will be no one who gets to challenge that authority however he will invite all of us into partnering with what he knows is good right and true and he will absolutely take uh he, he will give the permission to people to be making decisions over certain areas but if there's any area of his heart where he's like no no that's not right that's not good that's not true he will not tolerate that, that expression and that existence uh, under his government. And so, um, so if I use the wrong term, I'm probably prone to that. Um, but, uh, but that's what I meant by dictatorship is that there is nobody who's going to get to tell him what to do. And it's good because he's perfectly wise and perfectly smart. And thank you for the last question because he's all into sharing. Okay. Um, but there's nobody that's going to be able to like challenge his authority or usurp him or, you know, some governmental system that's going to like keep Jesus in check. <laughs> Jesus is self-sustaining check keeper. And so, uh, he, he is going to rule with an iron scepter. Just that, that picture of that iron scepter, you just, 
Every picture that we have is a negative one, but he won't be negative. He'll be perfectly wise and kind and show that ruling with an iron scepter is actually a good thing. And we've never had that picture in human history because anybody with that leadership style has always been human. So they've been bad because there's no one good, not no, no, not one. Like, but Jesus is the one. So it's like he's the one that's good. So you can actually entrust him with that, which you would never entrust a man with. Um, so uh, great question. Yeah. So the question is, if Jesus is a good God, how can he kill people? How can he fight? How can he have war? The real question is, how can Jesus be good and not kill horrendously evil people who are attacking his bride and martyring her? How can Jesus still be good if Jesus does not defend his bride? Now, the real question is, the vengeance of Jesus right now is building instead of acting every time that there's something violent or wrong. So we actually have a wrong paradigm because we have this picture that Jesus never gets mad, never gets violent, never expresses his wrath. And what we need to understand is he is slow to anger, not no to anger. He is slow to anger. And it is building. And his wrath will be released. And his, the release of his wrath is not him finally throwing a temper tantrum. His release of his wrath is to make wrong things right, to remove the things that are attacking who he is, that are hindering the, the, the moving forward of his kingdom, to remove everything that hinders love is a term that uh, Mike Bickle uses at IHOP a lot, and I think it's a great term, to remove everything everything that hinders love. God is love. Therefore, if God is love, he has got to remove everything that hinders love. And if there's some stuff that is said, I am a love hinderer and you can't stop me. I am Mr. Hindering of love. God has to remove that thing. He has to, or he's not love, but he's slow to anger. But we see a lot in revelation where he's like, the time has come. It's important to understand the time of his wrath. Because it's not God is wrath all the time. It's the time of his wrath. It is the mounting, surmounting, building moment where it's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. I am now releasing the fullness of my wrath. If you read the, I don't know, maybe 10 primary passages on the wrath of God, the language is unbelievable. The winepress of the fury of his wrath is one of the terms. I mean, just process that for a minute. Like, it is something that is pressed, that is building. And so, uh, so in all honesty, we have a bit of a wrong paradigm, and that is that God isn't about wrath. That's incorrect. God's love requires wrath tempered, measured, calculated, and a right time. And he releases it. Just think about this. It's actually the nicest thing he's ever done to wait to release his wrath instead of it like being a, you know, something, uh, some kind of pipe that builds up steam and it just, it bursts and like the horn goes off every, you know, hour or every 10 years or every hundred years in human history. It is the kindness of God to let that pressure grow all the way until the end when there's an antichrist to pour it out on and a government that's completely lost its mind and a whole earth that's, that's martyring the saints. 
So it's like, okay, now I'm finally going to release it in the fullness of time, in the fullness of the day of my wrath, in the fullness of the hour of wickedness, the, the absolute pinnacle of the wickedness of mankind. I'm going to wait to release the fullness of my wrath in that hour of history, and I will have released fullness so no one could accuse me that I didn't release wrath on wickedness. I just was slow to anger, and I waited instead of, you know, bursting it out every 10 years in expressions of my wrath, I was holding it for the day of judgment. And so, uh, so God is wise and kind and calculated. He is calculated. And his wrath is actually a, a proof of his love because his wrath is not, uh, you know, crazy and uh, as sporadic. It is focused on the things and the people that are killing his church. <laughs> That's where the wrath goes. And so, uh, so that's actually an expression of his love for us. And so uh, we all love the stories where the, the, the man stands up for the woman and just fights for her honor and, you know, and defends her and, and shows that uh, expression of love. And that's written into the human spirit because it's the storyline of humanity. And it, it is coming. It's coming in its fullness. So. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.